Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Would you open with me to Matthew chapter 16? Matthew chapter 16. I would argue that we are entering into the most wonderful time of the year. The birds are chirping, the sun is shining bright. Well, it always is in San Diego, isn't it? But in a different way now. And, and it is baseball season. Can I get an amen? Oh, so good. Once again this year, I have the chance to coach one of my kids' baseball teams. And at the beginning of each year, the coach boys around and we give a little just sort of preseason pep talk. And it goes something like this. Boys, our goal this year is to have fun. Our goal is to develop as baseball players. And our goal is to form a a team that becomes like a family where we really enjoy each other's company. And each time I tell people the goal is to have fun, I think in the back of my head, yeah, and winning is more fun than losing. Can I get an amen? I mean, I've been a part of teams that have won and I've been a part of teams that have lost and it's way more fun to win than it is to lose. I mean, if you've watched the NCAA tournament, you saw Oral Roberts run to the Sweet 16, you could go and you could ask the student body at Oral Roberts University, is it more fun to win or to lose? And they would tell you it's more fun to what? To win. If you've been a part of a, of a culture or a team that sort of made a run at the World Series or in the playoffs, you know it's way more fun to win than it is to lose. As a Colorado, former Colorado Rockies fan, um, was used to a lot of losing, right? You Charger fans, you can relate, can't you? I mean, think of the the stories that we tell, the superheroes that we embrace through comic book movies and stories. The superheroes are people who win. They, They dominate. They subject other people under their reign and under their rule. And in so many ways, they take their cues from the ancient quote-unquote gods, lowercase g gods. I mean, I think of, of Zeus, who was the supreme deity in the ancient Greek pantheon. He was actually the youngest of all of his siblings. His dad, Titan Cronus, ate he and all of his other siblings because he was worried that they would overtake him as ruler. Well, Zeus fought to get free, lived on the island of Crete, and then went back and won a battle to become ruler of the entire world in a bloody mess, took over, and ruled. Those are the kinds of stories that we're used to when we think about the quote-unquote gods. I mean, they're stories of winning. They're stories of dominance. They're stories of power and overthrowing at all costs. If you're familiar with the way of Jesus, you know that his way was completely contrary to the way of the world. Matthew chapter 16 may draw this point out better than any other place in our scriptures. And in order to give you a little bit of context for where we're going today, let me read for you the scene that precedes the passage that we're going to dive into deeply. Here's what it, it begins in Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse 13. And it says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, 
Who do people say that the Son of Man is? What, what's the word on the street about me? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, who do you say that I am? Let, let's make this a little bit more personal, disciples. And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, or rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, now what an affirmation to Simon. I mean, he's just been told that his affirmation of faith would be the very foundation that the church was built on. This declaration that Jesus is Lord is the undergirding of all that Jesus was going to do in the future. And I just have to wonder, did Simon start to walk a little bit taller that day? I mean, were his shoulders pinned back a little bit, his chin in the air? I wonder if the disciple, other disciples mistakenly called him Simon again, and he said, no, 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 no. It's not Simon anymore. Now, boys, it's Peter, the rock, Dean Johnson, in your midst. <laughs> I wonder if it was that type of an attitude that caused the aligning conversation that happened between he and Jesus right after this, verse 20. From that time, and, and every um, scholarly uh, commentary on Matthew would suggest that this is sort of the pivot point in Matthew's gospel, that, that Jesus starts to move towards Jerusalem and towards the cross from this point forward. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, be raised. Now, for the Messiah, for the, the Christ, the anointed one, to be killed, this was an oxymoron. I mean, the gods didn't die. The Messiahs don't lose. The Christ isn't killed. He's victorious. He rides into Jerusalem and the, and the heads are supposed to roll and Rome is supposed to be overthrown. Like, this is the way that the story plays out. This is the way that things go. See, in the Jewish mind, the Christ wasn't coming to endure suffering. He was coming to end suffering. And so Peter is taken aback. And in light of that, he decides to take Jesus back. Because Jesus must be off. He must have his wires crossed somewhere. And Peter... Is going to help Jesus out. Have you ever tried to help Jesus out? You can imagine it's not going to go all that well. And it says, he says, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That, that's the same word, rebuke, word that uses, where Jesus casts out demons. He rebukes them. Jesus rebuked the wind and the waves. And they became still, completely still. It's a strong word. You imagine Peter saying, Jesus, um, remember how I'm the rock? Well, come, come here. Um, let's just have a little game time huddle about what you just said. Because what I heard you say was you're going to go die. And I don't think that's what you actually meant. And I love it. Here's the way he says it. He says, and Jesus responded saying, far be, or sorry, Peter says this to Jesus, far be it from you, Lord, 
this shall never happen to you. So he calls him Lord. And then in the next breath says, you're Lord, but you don't know what you're doing. All right, I'm going to be really honest with you. I play the same game with God sometimes. What about you? I believe that you're Lord, but I don't know what you're doing here. I mean, this pandemic's lasted way too long. You're Lord, but I'm not sure what the government's doing. You're Lord. I can remember praying after my mom passed away. I believe that you are Lord, but I'm not sure I trust you right now. That Peter is having. And I think Peter's trying to connect the dots in a logical way that, that, that this mercy of God, the goodness of God, would prevent good people, which Jesus was the epitome of, from suffering. That God wouldn't lead Jesus, his Messiah, into suffering. He would protect him from it. He would prevent him from walking into it. Isn't that the way that we think the world should work? And Jesus' response to Peter is quite startling. It's intended to be read as a startling response. He says this in verse 23. He turned to Peter, and, and literally in the Greek, it's like doing, uh, the, the picture is of a, of a pivot on a heel, like boom. Peter, let's have a conversation. He turned to Peter, and he said, get behind me, not rock. Get behind me, what? Satan, you are a hindrance to me. Now, if you're new to the Bible, maybe this is your first time at church in a long time, that is not a comment. It's not a turn of a phrase. It's not, oh, you're sick or you're killing it. It's not that. No. A alignment conversation that Jesus is having with Peter. And certainly, naming Peter as the rock did not make Peter inerrant. Yeah, Peter had gotten the word, Christ, correct. But all of the content that he put into that word, he got wrong. He put in the content of the, the Zeus's. He put into the content the way that the world worked. He didn't put into, the con into that the content of what God was like. See, Jesus wasn't going to be the Christ in the way that Peter expected. His victory, his success was going to come through his suffering and through his sacrifice. Now, just a quick note. What does it mean that when Jesus calls Peter Satan? Is he saying that that's his identity? Well, no, he's not. But by this time, Jesus knew what the temptations of Satan were like. I mean, he'd been tempted in the desert, and he knew that the temptation to be above the ordinary, to avoid suffering, to win at all costs is what the Satan was about. And so when Jesus came into contact with those temptations, he knew who their true author really was. And he calls Peter out. And I think Jesus' point is an, is an important one for us. See, it's possible, friends. It's possible to declare that Christ is to have good intentions, which Peter had, but to stand in the way of what Jesus ultimately wants to accomplish. See, when Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, what he's saying is, hey, Peter, you are out front. You're not in the position of a disciple. A disciple's position is in line behind the rabbi. They're following 
the rabbi. And Peter, you're out game. You're trying to go about things in your own way with your ingenuity and your logic and your vision of the way that the world should work. Peter, you're out front. And I wonder if Jesus might say a similar thing to us today. And listen to Jesus's diagnostic summary of why Peter's doing what he's doing. Here's what he says, verse 23. He says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So, so Jesus tells Peter, Peter, your thinking's off. Have you ever stopped to recognize just how much your thinking influences your life? I mean, there's a reason that the scriptures would say to us, be transformed by the renewing of your mind because in so many ways, the way that you think determines the way that you walk and the way that you walk will shape the life that you live. And see what Jesus tells Peter is you can either have in mind, have as your operating system for life, the way of man or the way of God. The way of man or the way of God. And I think he might want to say, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 26 says that he who trusts his own mind is a, anybody know it? A fool, a fool. And that applies even when you're trying to protect Jesus. You know, it's funny because on the surface, Peter does seem concerned with the things of God. I mean, he wants to prevent Jesus from suffering. He wants God's victory. He wants him to set up his kingdom. He wants him to rule and to reign. But one of the things that Peter shows us is that we can want Jesus's victory, but not want to go about it Jesus's way. And when we do that, we're off. We're off. Yeah, the victory of God only comes about in the way of God. He doesn't deviate. He doesn't take shortcuts and he doesn't change his mind. So at the risk of creating an overly simplistic dichotomy, there are two ways that you and I can think. We can either think in line with the things of man or we can think in line with the things of God. That's it. There's only those two choices. The way of man is success at all costs. The way of God is sacrificial suffering. The way of man is self-protection. The way of God is self. The way of man is winning through defeat. The way of God is victory through love. The way of man is greatness. The way of God is service. The way of man is hubris. The way of God is humility. The way of man is up. The way of God is down. And here's the challenge, you guys. Here's the challenge. The way of man is effective, it's predictable, it's efficient, and it often, quote unquote, works. It gets things done. But I would argue it also keeps us in the shallow end. It also prevents us from partnering with Jesus and the deep work that he wants us to do. But most of all, it prevents us from actually becoming disciples of our Messiah, our Christ, who said, I will be victorious through the giving of my own life.
Yeah, I think the way of God, quote unquote, becomes an issue for us in two ways. Let me give them to you. Number one, the first way it's an issue for us is because we have to rethink our view of God. Rethink our view of God. That Jesus, Yahweh, is not like Zeus. That, that's not what God is ultimately like. Yeah, that's the way Peter seemed to view God, but it's not the way that God actually is. See, Peter expected that God would come in and rule in a way where he completely obliterated his enemies, where the heads would roll in a bloody battle that he was victorious in. But that is not what God did. And praise be to God that that's not what God does because you and I, according to the scripture, are God's or were God's enemies. Anybody wanna say amen to that? Romans chapter five, verse eight said that while we were yet enemies, Christ loved us and died for us. Friends, that's such good news. You might even call it gospel. God is humble, self-giving, and sacrificial at his core. Jesus reveals to us what God is really like. In fact, Jesus himself claimed, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And what do we see when we see Jesus? We do not see a bloodthirsty, triumphal executor. We see a God who says, I would rather die for my enemies than kill them. This is a different way. Second, second, review our view of God. I, we have to rethink the way that you and I, the moment, the cross of Christ is not something that we are only called to believe in. It's something we are called to emulate. It's something we're called to live out. Would you write this down? Jesus died for us, but he also calls us to die with him. The cross isn't just an event that happened. It's a way that we are called to live every day. Listen to the way that the apostle Paul wrote it to the church at Galatia. He said, I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, we are called to incarnate the cross to live the way of the cross in our marriages, in our friendships, in our home, in our workplaces, in our neighborhood. Hey, even in our politics, we're called to live out the way of the cross. And there are two paths, two distinctly different paths in front of every single one of us with is what path are we on? What mindset, what view have we adopted? And I would argue that the way that you're thinking about God, about Jesus, about victory, about success, about greatness, about all of that will determine the kind of life that you and I end up living. And Jesus's next statement is filled with such grace and such hope. It says, and Jesus told his disciples. Isn't it interesting that Jesus is giving a talk about discipleship to disciples? Because we, we need to constantly look at our lives and go, God, are we, are we in line with your way and your heart? He said this to them. 
If anyone would come to me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And don't you love that Jesus quickly gets over his anger toward Peter and reinvites him to follow? Reinvites him to get in line, which is great news for us this morning. That if you go, God, I've been, my thinking's been off. My way has been off. I've been believing in this like triumphal, bloodthirsty um, way of going about power living. And God, he's saying, well, you could change your mind. You could get back in line with my heart and my way. He says it to Peter today. And he gives him a threefold invitation. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow. Now let me give a quick word on each because in so many ways these are going to tease out what it means for us to not just believe the cross but to live it out on a daily basis. First, deny yourself. I think it would be helpful for us at the onset of this sub-point to name the reality that self-denial is not exactly in vogue today. Not that it ever has been, but we live in a day and time of not only gratification, but instant gratification. We live in a moment where in books and narrative that our cultural moment is telling is that there is a courage and bravery to follow your heart at all costs. Feed your desires. Go get it. I think back to a movie, Marriage Story, that was nominated for an Academy Award a few years ago. And the plot line is all based around this woman who wasn't satisfied in her marriage. Marriage was feeding her husband's needs and desires more than her. And so she had the courage and the bravery to leave the marriage. And is that story, that same story that's painted on a thousand canvases every day in our current cultural moment? I would argue that we live in a day and time where we are obsessed with self. The greatest sin used to be denying God. Now the greatest sin is denying self. Or it may still be denying God, but we have made ourselves God. Yeah, as Woody Allen famously quipped, the heart wants what the heart wants. But what the heart wants is often contrary to God's design. It's often contrary to the way of flourishing, to the way of life. See, denial means, and I'd invite you to write this down, that we surrender our desires to God's design. There are wants and desires that we all have that will kill us if we give into them. And so I would say that when a person starts to follow Jesus, the war within doesn't end it actually just begins because we're invited to follow the spirit instead of the flesh. It's like a a restaurant that puts out this new management. Under new management, I'm no longer following my base desires or my just my strongest desires. I'm aligning my life with the design of my creator. And I love the way that John puts this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. He gives us some language for how to think about what it looks like to deny self. Listen to what he wrote. He said, do not love the world or the things in the world. That, the, the way of man, if you will. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father 
but it's from the world. Do you notice that there are three categories that John sort of thinks within when he's talking about denying self? The first is the desires of the flesh. The desires of the flesh. And these are things that run contrary to the way of God that our body naturally longs for. I mean, think of our sexuality in our day and time. Self-denial when it comes to sexuality in our current cultural moment Right? The, the narrative is just whatever you want, it's right, it's good, it's true, follow it. And the scriptures would say to us, no, 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 no. There are some things that you could chase after that will actually end up destroying your soul. Things you really want, things that may feel good in the moment, but that will eventually lead to death. When John writes about desires of the flesh, that's what he's talking about. Second, he says, in the desires of the eyes. That's anything that we look at and see that we believe, if I had that, then I'd be okay. It's the same lie that Eve believed in the garden. She saw the fruit, that it was pleasing to the eye. And her narrative was, if I get that, then I'll be okay. Then I'll be full, then I'll be whole. And we could fill into that with a house, with a car, with a relationship, with whatever, right? And then finally, finally, John says, and then there's the, the pride of life. And pride shows itself in so many different ways. Manipulation, control, the need for people to like us, to think ourselves, to get the, the final word, the conviction that, that we know best. But Emmanuel Faith, we cannot live in the way of the cross if we give in to every desire we have. It's not just difficult, it's impossible. And so I want to challenge you this week, as we enter into Holy Week, to try to ask God, and not, don't try to ask him, ask God, what are some things in my life, what are some desires in my life that are actually leading me away from your way? Maybe you spend a day fasting and asking that question, not feeding a desire for hunger. That's not a bad desire, but intentionally creating a hunger that you ask God to fill. I think he'll speak to you. Second, Jesus said was, take up your cross. Now we live in the wake of 2,000 plus years of church history. For us, the cross, I mean, you could see it over there, adorns church buildings. It's worn as a piece of jewelry. But I don't need to tell you that that would not have been the case in first century. No, in the first century, in the Roman Empire, if somebody was carrying cross, it was a position of shame. It was a march of death. And the Romans designed order to shame and humiliate the person being crucified as much as they possibly could, which is why it was reserved for criminals. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, nobody looks at him and goes, that's a great idea. Yeah, let's do that. And nobody looks at him and goes, that's what somebody else taught too. This is completely new. This is completely foreign. This is completely different. And I would argue that the way of the cross is just as controversial today as it was 2,000 years ago. It's certainly not as observable, but the reality of carrying a cross is just as repugnant. I, I'm reminded of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. He wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, and he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and, anybody know? Die. Come and die. 
And if we are going to live out the way of the cross, we've got to get back to the original meaning of the cross. See, because the cross wasn't just Jesus' death. It was the way that he conquered sin and death. It was the way that he saved you and me from a life, from an eternity apart from hell and death and sin and defeat. It was a way that he stepped into the way of love, giving himself for others. In fact, John summarizes the way of the cross and the impact of the cross. And he says this, by this we know love. He laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So when we talk about the way of the cross, we're not just talking about self-sacrifice. Well, we're talking about sacrifice for the sake of loving others. That's what we're talking about. In fact, would you write this down? That we are called to give ourselves in love for the good of others. And those others, if we're going to live the cross in the way that Jesus invites us to, must also include our enemies. I would argue that we can take up the cross on a day-to-day basis by asking one simple question, what does love demand of me? What does love demand of me? That's the way to carry the cross. So to take up the cross means that even when we disagree, we love. It means that when we take a stand, we also extend a hand. It means that when we see people on the outskirts or on the periphery, those who are vulnerable and in positions of need, that we help if we're able. What love demands of us is to be patient, to be kind, to to not be arrogant or rude. It means that we don't insist on our own way. And it means that we bear not some things but all things, according to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. That verse should be read at more than just weddings. Can I get an amen? What if Christians lived this way on social media? (laughs) What if Christians, followers of Jesus, began to believe Okay, that we can be followers of Jesus even if we don't have rights, which people do all over the world. But we cannot be followers of Jesus if we do not have love. How might that reshape the way that we engage with our world? Finally, Jesus said, follow me, follow me. It's this call to to get in line, to take the place of a disciple rather than being out front like a rabbi. I don't know. I've spent some time thinking about this this week, friends, and I'm a lot like Peter. How about you? I'll follow Jesus when I agree with where he's going. I'll I'll follow Jesus when he follows my blueprint and my agenda. But when he goes off course, I start going, hey, Jesus, I thought we were going this way. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. In church on Sunday, I will echo Carrie Underwood's anthem, Jesus, take the wheel. But when we get in the car to go home, I'm a backseat driver. Is anybody with me? Hey, you should go there. You should do this. You're driving too fast. You're driving too slow. Most of the time, it's too slow. Okay, right? And we start trying to tell Jesus where to go. 
Here's the invitation. What does it look like to be people who don't just believe in the cross, but who live it out? We yield our ambitions to his direction. Would you write that down? We yield our ambition to his direction. I think of what later on Jesus would say to Peter. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. He said this to show what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, anyone guesses? Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. We were talking on our writing team where we meet every Wednesday, 10 days before the sermon to talk about this text, this passage of scripture. And I asked our writing team, are there any commands of Jesus that you just really struggle with? That, that you maybe even don't agree with? In a moment of just total transparency and honesty said, pretty much the whole Sermon on the Mount. I mean, turn the other cheek? Go the second mile? Bless those who persecute you? I raise my eyebrows too. And in so many ways, the air that we breathe is the way of man, isn't it? And we go, that would never work. You could never actually do that. You'd get run over. You'd get demolished. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't asking us to follow him when we agree with him. He's asking us to follow him always. If we're going to be his disciples, we have got to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and follow him. It may mean, it will mean that we believe some really unpopular things and live in very unpopular ways. I mean, it'll mean that we have a different view of sexuality. It'll mean that we have a different view and use our money. It'll mean that we have a different view of the sanctity of life in all of its forms than many of the people around us. And I think what Jesus is asking all of us this morning is not just, will you believe that the cross happened, but will you live in the way of the cross today? You take up your cross. Will you deny yourself? And will you follow? And listen to what Jesus says in the end, because he anticipates us thinking that won't work. And that doesn't play out. Here's what he says. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Don't miss what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, even though it seems counterintuitive, even though it seems like it won't work, even though you want to hold on to power and winning at all costs, it's when you actually let go of that way and that narrative that you find true, abundant, meaningful, beautiful life. That letting go is a closet door that opens up a whole world of Narnia that really is fully and truly living. Would you write this down as we begin to close our time? True life is found in complete surrender to Jesus. That's what he's saying. 
True life is found in complete surrender to Jesus. I love the way that Chris Tomlin wrote it, that, oh, the wonderful cross, die and find that I may truly live. It was a number of years ago, I was a, I was a youth pastor and I had taken a number of our, our students water skiing. I didn't do and don't do a lot of water skiing, but it was my turn and I was behind the boat and I had my ski out of the water and I was holding on to the rope and I was thinking to myself, as the pastor, you've, you can't fail here. Don't screw this up. And so I'm behind the boat and I'm holding on and I say, hit it. And the boat takes off and my ski starts to get a little bit squirrely. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh no, I'm going down, right? And eventually it went parallel to the boat, which if you've done water skiing at all or just no physics, that's not good, right? And so I, I am, but I was holding on as tight as I could, just getting dragged behind this boat, water hitting me in the face, right? And I'm thinking to myself, you can fight back. Like battle, Ryan, try harder. Like get that ski out front, you can fight it. And eventually I held on long enough that I heard people on the boat yelling, oh, if I wasn't their past, I would have said, let go, you moron. Let go. And I wonder if Jesus might say the same thing to us today. Let go of the way of men. Let go of your people-pleasing. Let go of your addiction to success, to achieving, to perfection, to progress. Let go of your image management. Let go of feeling like you have to make excuses. Let go of trying to get the final word and proving that you're right. Let go of your need to be in control. Let go of your narrative of winning. Let go. Let go. See, I think Jesus is saying, you're going to carry something. You're going to either carry your pride and your need to win at all costs, or you're going to carry your cross. And his point is, the cross is actually lighter. It's lighter. It was 2,000 years ago, roughly that Jesus got on the back of a colt and rode into Jerusalem. People lined the streets. They took off their coats and they began to wave palm branches, declaring, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna! Our God will save. And they expected him to ride into Jerusalem and they expected a bloody mess where he would be victorious and his enemy would be completely wiped out. They would get to rule and reign with him. Ah, the way of man. And yet, he walked into Jerusalem or rode into Jerusalem on that donkey and he would be victorious and he would rule. And he would reign. And it would look nothing like what the people expected. Nor what they wanted. And yet, and yet, his love won. He conquered through the giving of his very life. And he asks us today, will we follow? Remember, friends, the cross isn't just something that we believe happened. 
cross is a way that we are called to live today. And that kind of love, that kind of love can transform a life, can transform and that could transform the whole world. Let's pray that it would through us. Let's pray. Would you just take a moment in light of all that we've talked about today, would you just ask Jesus, what do you want me to walk away with? What do you want me to hear? Is there any way I'm saying it's gotta be my way and I refuse to deny myself? Is there any way you're out of alignment with the way of love, extending love to those around you? Is there any way you're out front of Jesus saying this is where we need to go? So Father, this week as we enter into Holy Week, our desire and our prayer is to hear your voice, to walk intimately with you, to look honestly at ourselves to see if there would be any way off or wicked or offensive within us and then to repent and to turn. We want your way. We want to follow your heart. So help, help us live your way. Help us extend your love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.